Tell me, will watches ever go out of style? No. Watches will not go out of style. I'll tell you why. Easy answer. Yeah. Why? The watch is the only, it's the only item, uh, like luxury item that you can do a couple of things. It's one, it says a lot about you and it makes a statement and, and it's functional. So no one knows what kind of car you drive. No one knows what kind, no one knows where you live and no one knows what type of suit you're wearing. But when it comes to a watch, it's a statement piece that says something a lot about you, whether it's blingy, whether it's conservative, whether it's uh, depending upon the brand, it says a lot about who you are and what you represent. And it opens doors for a lot of people because it is, because it makes a statement about who they are. And then, so I don't think they go out of style, mm-hmm. uh, primarily because historically watches were used to tell time. Now it's more of a, it's a piece that actually says a little bit about who you are and what you represent. For everybody tuning in, if you're not uh, watching one of the videos or tuning into one of the podcast platforms, be sure to check out John Cormier and his website, watchfacts.com. That's facts, like F-A-C-T-S, watchfacts.com, John Cormier. Um, Tell us a little bit more about the site, because at first I was a little, I wasn't exactly too sure, but then uh, like facts, was this anything to do with like Carfax and um, like, did, did that have any play on why you called it watch facts? I know it it's spelled of, differently. It did in the beginning. I mean, it's, it was watch facts, uh, F-A-X, but people sent communicated, I guess the facts about things using a fax machine, but the way we thought about it, we really, we rethought the business and we said, look, watch facts is about, it, it was kind of a play on words. It was, people think it's the facts about watches but it's really, it's the facts about, it's, it's about watching the facts for any particular luxury item. And our logo, um, coincidentally, it's, you know, the, the, if you look at watches when you buy them new, they have the little check, which basically frames the face. It's really like a smiley face, right? Because they want mm-hmm. you to be happy when you're looking at this very expensive timepiece that you purchase. For us, it's actually some authentication check mark. So it was kind of a play um, just in the event that we weren't able to pivot from luxury watches into other luxury goods. And you have quite the story as to why you got into watches yourself, right? You, uh, it was one of the first, like you always had a thing for watches, right? And then you, uh, you definitely hit, you got hit pretty hard, I guess. <laughs> where yes. It hurt. Yes. I mean, there are a number of stories, uh, but I, the thing is like, I love watches. I love the, mm-hmm. the complexity that they have. You don't really appreciate what goes into making a mechanical timepiece. So, you know, I've, you know, and I also appreciate vintage watches as well. And so I, I've been taken, I think like a lot of people who enjoy vintage or something, find something that's pre-owned, they want to buy something, they want to tr- have a trusted experience. I am unfortunately, you know, unfortunately I, you know, I co-founded this business to basically be, um, to serve service someone like myself, which is mm-hmm. someone who actually appreciates luxury and also, but doesn't really necessarily want to pay the, the luxury tax, the luxury boutique tax. I think the brand spent a lot of time selling us this item. So it's got, it's, it's got worth to me, mm-hmm. but you know, I don't like depreciation as well. So if I get it and I can get it at a good price, I want to make sure that it's, that it's good. My mother used to say, if you're buying something used, you're buying someone else's problems. 
whether it's <laughs> not working or it's not authentic, you know? So, um, yeah, I've had, I've had some pretty bad experiences, but the business was built around creating trust and every product and service that we create, whether it's for the, it, for this, for a platform, a consumer or for a seller, it's all about trust. So that's basically what watch facts means. It's the, it's the business of selling trust. Did it take a while to kind of gain that trust, right? Cause just any, being any business owner uh, for myself, for example, took a little bit of while to gain someone's trust and you've gained trust of uh, the likes of Amazon, eBay, right? Some big companies that utilize your platform. Um, how long, how long did that take and how was that process? It, it took a while. I mean, um, you know, part of the process of getting these platforms was, um, you know, focusing on like, like one thing, which is, you know, having domain expertise. And because I like watches, uh, you know, watches was the first call it vertical that we, that we entered into. And with Amazon and eBay and, you know, just take any of the major platforms, you know, their job is to grow, grow verticals. They want to grow their categories. And what they want is they want a partner that actually understands the players within the space as well as understands kind of the products. So what we do is we say, look, with every platform, we say, look, here's what we're going to do. We can get you into pre-owned safely and securely. We'll vet the sellers, we'll vet the product. Anything goes wrong, we'll take care of it. And that was a very, that was a value proposition to a lot of these platforms. Mm -hmm. um, because everyone, you know, a lot of, the, depending upon which platform it is, you know, each platform has a rotational program. So the people who are running the program, they know business, they know e-commerce, but they don't have domain expertise. So for them and for us, it was a great partnership because we provided the domain expertise in terms of the vetting the product, the sellers, providing a one-year warranty, which actually telegraphs that you have a really good product, while whereas their expertise was to get the product in front of as many eyeballs as possible. Mm -hmm. So how does that work? Like, for example, say I got a nice Rolex, which I don't. If somebody wants to send me one, please do. I don't have one. And but I wanted to sell one or buy one. Like say I go online, how would I know um, if, if this watch has been certified by WatchFax? So the, the easiest way to know that is uh, you'll see a certificate. So like on Amazon and eBay, a lot of the major platforms, there's a certificate that says certified pre-owned. It's mm -hmm. yellow or it's blue, depending upon if it's um, the, the warranty type. But the quickest and easiest way to know if it's um, if it's if it's uh, backed by WatchFax is it'll say you have a report. It's a condition report, and the condition report mm -hmm. will basically tell you uh, brand model reference number and the checks that it's gone through. So any seller that actually sells a WatchFax certified watch, that watch goes through a standardized thirty-one point inspection. It's like buying a pre-owned car. Yeah. You, know, you buy it from Mercedes, you want to make sure it goes through the 167 point check that Mercedes goes through so mm -hmm. it looks and functions like new. And same thing with us. We want you to know exactly what you're buying because the buyer has the greatest financial risk and the seller has the greatest financial gain. So exactly. we wanted to ensure that if something goes wrong, you actually have a trusted party that will help you make it right. And what we're trying to do is basically create an online standard. You can very easily go into a Torno, for example, or a Mayor's and buy an item there because you know they're publicly traded exactly. companies and or you know they're they're large companies and they're not going to go anywhere at least for a long, at least for now. But when it's online, that person can become a ghost. So what we try to do is create more credibility to those particular sellers, mm -hmm. as well as provide credibility to the platforms because with the platforms they now have protection 
of a partner that actually not only vests the sellers, but is also financially on the hook as well. Yeah, because I mean, that could be scary. I'm, I'm thinking, you know, going out there trying to buy a $10,000, $20,000 watch and not knowing for sure if there could be something totally off with it or if it's fake, right? That's right. Um, is it, what's the incentive for, for I guess, the seller? Does, this, does Amazon like force the seller to get the, the certification, yes. for example? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So okay. for each platform, it uh, depends upon the platform, but each mm-hmm. platform will actually have a certification process. Either they'll vet the sellers on their own or they'll partner with us to vet the sellers. Mm-hmm. And if we vet the sellers, we continuously review their products weekly to ensure that what they're putting online actually looks and is as described. And then we'll also periodically audit the watches. So we'll secretly purchase the watches from these sellers or we'll say, look, send us in these three watches because they look Uh funny. And so every quarter we, you know, based on which contract we have, there's an agreement that we, between us and the sellers to send us in watches for us to evaluate. What happens with those watches? (laughs) And where where did all these extra watches you've purchased, you know, per your audit, where have they went? (laughs) Oh no, they go back. They go back. They're, Ah, they're, no, no, they're, 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 they're purchased um, either through us or they're sent voluntarily by the, uh, by the seller. And then they're returned within three business days. Okay. So like, but say you do an audit, you know, you buy one, not, they don't know about it. Right. And then you sort of just return it like it was a regular return. Yes. Yes. Okay. Okay. I was going to say, if some magically, you know, if you don't end up returning a few, you know, I I could always give you my, my name. (laughs) Donations, (laughs) donations, watch donations, Rolex donations. Yes. (laughs) That's awesome. But uh, what, what do you think, uh, what do you think it is about watches? Like it's, do you you consider it a niche or no? Or do you think it's something that is a standard product, like wearing a belt with your pants? I think, I think, I think it, um, it's more of a niche market. Um, okay. But again, for us, our goal at long-term is to create a new economy called re-commerce. So it's basically, think of it as the brand spending a lot of time and money getting you to buy something that's luxury, whether it's a watch, whether it's a handbag, an Hermes handbag, or it's a Cartier Love bracelet. They're spending a lot of time getting you to buy it. At a certain point in time, you're going to amortize your enjoyment your love for that particular item. And once you've, you've amortized that, you know, because it, it's got a, a natural expiration date, you're going to want to get rid of it. And because that brand has spent so much time enticing you to acquire it, it does have residual. The residual is a function of the market value of it. So for us, um, watches is truly a niche market, but we started out with watches because I have a passion for watches. But our end game is to truly explore every luxury product out there where there's a true secondary trading value for those particular items. Again, like jewelry, handbags, could be guitars, it could be pens. So when you start to expand the world of collectors of sorts, those people have disposable good, disposable Mm -hmm. income, as well as an understanding of the collectability of an, of a luxury item. So it's something like a smartwatch now, which has made, you know, big, big headaways over Mm -hmm. the years. Is that killing the business or are you planning for that transition one day or do you think, or you're not really too concerned? So the smartwatch, you have to respect it. I mean, it's, it's, it's a different, it's got a different functionality, a different Mm -hmm. purpose. So if you want to tell the time you want to check, it's definitely significantly more convenient. If I, if I'm on my phone, you know, all the time, which it's kind of annoying, but if I'm in a meeting, 
and I get an email that can I stick in my phone. So it's significantly more convenient uh, in that regard. When the smartwatch first came out, you, you saw a lot of people wearing two watches because they wanted to sport their luxury watch and they also yeah. wanted to, wanted the convenience <laughs> was, of, you know, checking their emails and yeah. just calling them. That was weird. <laughs> yes, yes, it was a little, it's still, I still see it a lot and it's still, it's weird. Really? Yeah, but I, I do, I do. But it's, it's not as frequent as it was in the beginning. Um, so I, I think it's a function of generation as well. So I mm-hmm. think, you know, it, it really just depends on generations also where you are as well. Um, in certain circles, a luxury watch will always have a presence. And that's purely because it's a statement piece. If you're going to do a, an event or you're around, like I live in Miami and Miami is one of those places where, um, you definitely, you know, it's, again, it's a place where you still want to showcase something because it's, again, it's the only functional item that actually says something about you. New York is another place, Vegas, LA, the world in general. So watches will always have a place um uh in i think in in the world of things i think uh when i grew up you know mm-hmm. I, I got a watch i got a rolex as my graduation gift is that going to be as common now i think i think the generations are changing whereas money they they prefer the money to be spent differently yeah. so it's unclear in terms of what the longer term impact is going to be i will say this though um the watch industry has always been threatened its existence has always been threatened but it, it's always found a way to bounce back yeah. and i think it's because of what watches truly represent so are you are you doing anything like special right now to prepare for that like because yeah i do recall there was a moment when watches kind of did die out a little like partially at least it felt like it and mm-hmm. then they got hot like i just remember i got like 10 different kind i was obsessed right now now unfortunately i i did get the smartwatch yes. just recently. Uh-huh. So I'm on that, I'm on that train. Yeah. Are you, are you prepping for the, for a possible change? And like, you know, or do you, do you think the market's just so big that by the time you even get the whole market on your side, that's plenty of work ahead of you? So yeah, my, my response to that is, is actually twofold. Um, I, I think one is for us as a company, um, the way you, you, the way you prepare for any um, threat uh, in in your space is you have to diversify. Mm-hmm. So again, for us, it's it's the ability to expand to other verticals such as jewelry, such as handbags, and other items that um, where the existence you can say is is less compromised. I think in addition to that, um, our focus is not the watches that I think the smart watch truly threatens the watches that are a thousand dollars and below, which is not our market. Mm-hmm. Our market's really watches that are twenty five hundred dollars and above. So those watches, it's a diff, it's a different, it's a different audience. Um, so it's so, you know, so when you, when I think about our existence being threatened, I think about it as the luxury watch is less threatened than the average watch. You know, I can throw in a watch like Movement, which is like a three hundred and fifty dollar watch, or a Brea, which is like a three hundred fifty to six hundred dollar watch. Well, if I'm going to wear a watch, am I going to spend five to six hundred dollars on that versus six hundred dollars on a smartwatch? You know, different game. If I'm going to okay. buy a Paddock Nautilus, well, I'm not comparing my Nautilus to uh, a smartwatch. Yeah. Two different watches, two different statements. Mm-hmm. And it, I mean, being a millennial myself, I feel like we're kind of screwing things up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Do you feel like we're the hardest people to 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 sell? I guess, or you know, get to use uh, your platform, for example, just because. 
you know, maybe, maybe we're, we're too all over the place right now? Uh, the millennial has been difficult, I think, to connect with um, on, on many levels because it's unclear in terms of what the millennial wants um, and how to satisfy that particular need. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's like it, it goes back to who is your audience and how large is that audience and how do you how do you serve them, uh, serve them best? Uh, I would say the, the when you look at sort of the, the, the trend in sales and the, and the dip, um, I would say the dip has been, you know, the lack of de- uh, demand from the millennials. But again, for us, it still goes back to you got to diversify your product offering. So if you feel like your sales in one particular area, I mean, Amazon did it. You know, Amazon, yeah. they started selling books. And mm-hmm. what drives Amazon now is Amazon Prime through a subscription model as well as AWS. So it's, I think it's all about your ability to diversify your business, taking into consideration the competitive threats that are entering into your space. Oh, that's, that's definitely definitely a good way of looking at it because you do want to you do always want to prep you never know what's to come but before you uh got here to to the watch game where were you in the past like why why entrepreneurism why now you know it's it's fun yet it could be the worst thing in the world as you probably already know yes Uh, how how did you how did you get over here and, and why so my former life i was an investment banker i worked a gazillion hours on Wall Street. I did mergers and acquisitions, and I, I loved it. Um, but what I realized, and every and what got me to watch is more so was every time because you work so much. Uh, every time I completed a transaction, I bought myself a watch. It was like a trophy, <laughs> you know. I'm like, okay, I, re- I got this watch because I sold this company, and I can tell you a story about the company because of the watch. So that's pretty cool. So that's kind of how the collection built over time. Um, I then, I was in the World Trade Center and moved to Miami as a consequence of that event and said, I'd like to do something on my own. So then I started a uh, real estate um, fund. It was uh, an investment and a long, we also had a long short um, component to it to actually hedge against risk. So did that for, for a while and said, I'm just working way too hard. I like to create a situation where I have a business and I'm in another place and it's making money while I'm having fun doing my own thing. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I, I wanted to create a better lifestyle for myself. So I thought about a market that was fragmented, that needed more standardization and more transparency and security. So I, thinking about it, thinking about it, thinking about it, I had a bad experience on eBay uh, and I said, you know, I think, I think we can come in, build a model that can actually truly transform this space. So I put all my effort into like transforming this space. I thought it was going to take six months to a year, quite frankly. That's what I said. You know, it's pretty easy. If I <laughs> Get it going. Yeah. Let me just start, start traveling the world. Yeah. I said, you know, a year I'll be traveling the world. I'll be good. <laughs> and uh, it didn't, it didn't work out that way, but I definitely wanted to get in a position to yeah. where I actually could create um, a situation to where I could actually help people that work for me become independently wealthy, as well as create it, it, it more or less a business that actually would help people have more trust and transparency and create trust in transactions um, that are at arm's length. And did you, so essentially how long did that, how long did that part take? Like you said, you thought it was gonna be six months to a year. Uh, what are you at now? I stopped counting. I think I'm like year seven or eight right now. And it's, it's, it's taken a while. It's a, it's a very, very dark place, right? At times. 
It's not, it is. Not, it's a lonely place. It's not the easiest. And would you, I, I'm not saying, you know, you would regret it at all, but would you have gotten into it? Like if you knew beforehand of how, how dark and lonely and, and how narcissistic it could be, because you know, your face is on everything, right? You're, you're the one responsible. You're the one, you're the one here that I'm interviewing, not anybody else. Yes. Would you, would you still have done it? I don't know. I mean, I think I would, I always think of myself as Neo in the, in, in the matrix and ask myself, which pill should I have taken? You know, but there's a sense, uh, you know, you can always walk away. I think as an entrepreneur, I mean, I, I don't because I have investors and they invested in me. So it's one of the mm-hmm. reasons I don't walk away. But I think if you believe in something, you stick with it. I think it's very easy to walk away from anything. So, um, would I have done this then? Uh, I don't know. Like I will say there are much easier ways to earn a living, but I believe if you're passionate about something and you believe that you can be the change in the world, then you be that change. And so it's not easy. Like if anyone can do it, then it would be done. So the mm-hmm. thing that kind of, when I ask myself, like, do I suffer from regret? No, I'm like, I feel like I, I feel like you have to pivot. And a lot of the, no matter who that person is, a person's going through something, whether it's Elon Musk and he's worth whatever he's worth, yeah. that guy, no, I mean, that guy sleeps, he sleeps in the office. He's got a family, he sleeps under his desk. So I, I think if you are, if you're passionate about what you do, you just, the only, your only regret is re- you're regretting being passionate. But if you love it, you just give it your all. The lonely part about it is mm-hmm. when you are working nine to five, the market, I mean, there's someone kind of telling you what to do. And that's a little bit easier. As an mm-hmm. entrepreneur, what makes it lonely is the market judges you. You come up with the product and the market's going to say, yes, we like it. We don't, we don't mm-hmm. like it. And as an entrepreneur, you're trying to solve a problem for the world at an economical price. And you're trying to promote it to them so that they say, wow, I like John's product. He's solving a problem that I have. You know, and you think you're a smart guy. But the market, many days you go back and you say, I'm not as smart as I thought I was. What the hell the am market, I doing here? <laughs> yeah, what am I doing here? You know, should I do something else? Should I go and mm-hmm. get a job? And, you know, there's, you know, one of my favorite books is um, Zero to One by Peter Thiel. And he talks about entrepreneurialism and risk. Mm-hmm. And one of the key points he talks about is like, it's, there are different types of entrepreneurs. There's an entrepreneur such as myself. I started this thing from scratch. I wanted to disrupt the space. There's the people that started Uber, people that started you know, Airbnb. Mm-hmm. We were all in a different place and, you know, we're all trying to solve a problem and, you know, create a, provide a solution to a problem yes. that we think is fairly large. Everyone shares. Mm-hmm. And then there are other people that are entrepreneurs that actually go to companies like you can go to Uber today. It's still, it's, it's not a startup, but it's still a very entrepreneurial company. There's less risk there. So you'll get paid less, you know, in terms of from an equity standpoint, but the risk is less. And that's still an entrepreneur because you're there helping develop new products for Uber, you know, like whether now it's Uber Eats, could be Uber helicopters, Uber transportation, so many different things within that ecosystem that for the world, like you're still an entrepreneur, although Uber is theoretically an established company, but they're growing is very entrepreneurial. So it, it, it gets, I think it just depends upon what your yeah. appetite is. And if you're the, the second type of entrepreneur, well, the market judges you a little bit less because they're not really judging you. You're like, you're at an established company and you're actually helping create new products, actually build mm-hmm. on it. 
as opposed to trying to disrupt the market from scratch. And you're the guy because you don't know if you're right or wrong. The market's going to tell you if they like what you're selling oh, or yeah. not. Right? You'll, we'll find out. I mean, we always do real right. quick. Um, but kind of backtracking this couple, two things you brought up. One, um, actually, I'm going to save this one for later, but the other part. You said World Trade Center. Uh, how did how did that impact you? You said you were there, and yeah. So I was in investment banking, and uh, I was working 180, 100 plus hours a week. And that's what you do when you're mergers. You just work all the time. That's what and, I mean. Yeah, yeah it, it, I enjoyed. And it. you loved it. <laughs> you loved I, it. That I, much? I loved. I loved to hate it. Okay. I, 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 I love finance. I loved what I did. Those mm-hmm. the hours, and it was the, the the stress that actually I could I could have done without, mm-hmm. but. You, you have this, you know, it's banking is one of, it's, it's the epitome of narcissism. You know, it's just, you think you own the world. You think you're the smartest guy in the room and everyone thinks that way. And it's just a bunch of egos, but it was fun. I, I actually enjoyed it. Um, but it's a lot of, a lot of egos in a room and the role trade center kind of put things into perspective for me because it was, it doesn't matter how much money you have, how smart you think you are. Like everyone goes, you know, you kind of go the same. And so I stepped back and I said, like, mm. what's my legacy going to be? Is it going to be John Cormier, the investment banker, where if he dies, like, you know, he, does, he hasn't left his mark in, in the world? I said, as an entrepreneur, I can do something. If I feel I actually have the ability to contribute something to this world, what is that going to be? My brother's a surgeon. He saves lives. So that's his contribution. My mother's a teacher. My sister's a teacher. They teach. So I figured, I said, what is my contribution to the world? As an investment banker, it really wasn't much. I'm actually, you know, negotiating deals and that, that was fun, but it was very, you know, it was for myself. You know, as an entrepreneur, I wanted to create solutions for people and help employ others that where they can actually help, you know, do greater good for the world mm-hmm. as well. So World Trade Center kind of put things into perspective. It made me step back and think about what am I doing with my life? And if I were to pass today or tomorrow, like what's the world mm-hmm. going to think about me? So that's something safe to say that drives you all the time now. Yes. All right. In case it's, there's it's, any, it's, any dark yes, moments. It's, yes. It's it's the you die tomorrow. Like what's your what is your legacy? Mm-hmm. Like what what would I regret right now right here? All right. So what yes. what what else is there? Like what what else is next that you uh, that's on the agenda that that you're trying to get to? I guess. Now, not that you're anywhere, you know, not that you're an old man or anything. Yeah. You're super young, but what's yeah. next on the agenda? I mean, personally and professionally. Uh, both. You know, what's, what's some big, big goals you set for yourself? I mean, professionally, I would like to develop this into a global business. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd like to create a, like a truly an online standard and an ecosystem where people can truly buy, sell, trade, like luxury items mm-hmm. with minimal friction. And ideally, you know, I mean, if I had my druthers, I would say ideally use it as a currency where they can utilize that anywhere in the world. Like an Hermes bag, it's worth X. A Rolex just watch is worth Y. You know what it is? And the ability uh-huh. to standardize that with data would be something that I would love to be able to do. You could call it maybe a competitor. It's like a Bitcoin or something like that. But yeah. Have you looked into that? Like, is that something... It is something we're looking into. I think it takes uh-huh. time because, you know, unfortunately, um, when you're talking pre-owned goods, the condition kind of influences the valuation of it. True. So we're, we're working on, it. Can, you know, this is why the report came out, which has a score on it. It's, a, it's an equip, it's like, an, um, it makes, 
things equivalent uh, in terms or standardizes the pricing based on the condition of an item. So we're, we're continuing to work on that. I mean, it's, I wish it were a very quick exercise, but it is a challenge. But I think our ability to standardize the, the pricing of luxury goods will allow people to use that as a form of currency, however that may be. Um, personally, I like to start a family uh, someday um, soon. I'm not getting any, not getting any younger. Uh, mm-hmm. I, you know, I've done a lot of things per, uh, personally that I, I want to accomplish. I run track and field um, uh. as, as a hobby. So I've accomplished everything I want to there. You know? So it's, right now it's about the next chapter, I think, which would be a, a family. You mentioned an interesting point. You're in Miami and you, you have items or like to have items to kind of showcase is that like a Miami thing? Does it, is it almost like, I'm not, I don't live there or anything. I go, I right. visit there, but do you feel the pressure being there a little bit more than being from some random town in the middle of the U.S.? I, I personally don't, but there's a lot of pressure in Miami. Um, it's funny, when I worked in New York, it was mm-hmm. where do you work and where do you go to school? That's how people size you up. Um, Miami, it's, it's what do you drive and where do you live? <laughs> You know, and they always look at, you know, there's a, a call, there's a Swiss handshake. The uh-huh. Swiss handshake is before they look at your face, they look at what you're wearing your wrist, you know? Really? Yeah. It's, it's <laughs> sort of like that. So which watch you wearing? If you wear a Rolex, like you kind of like, don't really, you know, okay, he's a Rolex guy. And it's not the watch I wear when I go to Europe. You got to wear something that's a little more substantial. Um, when you go to a watch event or when uh-huh. you go to Switzerland in general, because everyone's got a Rolex. So if you're in the business or if you're someone of, a uh, best sense. You need to wear something that's a conversational piece. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Miami, it's, you know, you got to have the check boxes, you know, check bo- checked off. So it's a little, it's a little different here. Uh, huh. I call it, it's like the Italian, it's, it's, it's volume on a pulse. So I want to, but I can't, it's all about, you know, it's all about, Miami is a lot about show. It's a very superficial yeah. place. I like it. Don't get me wrong from a lifestyle standpoint, but do you, you see get, it? Do I still oh. see myself for long term? Yeah. Like starting a family there. I don't think I'd raise a family here. Huh. It, it's, uh, some I, people, think, I mean, some people do. I know, obviously, but <laughs> I think the value system is really it's really tough because it's yeah. it's about keeping up with the Joneses. So mm-hmm. I, I would like, uh, you know, if I'm fortunate to have a family one day, ideally, I'm raising my kids in a place where you know they're focused on the things that truly matter, the truly things that make you a better person. But I hope nobody from Miami listens to this episode. Oh, probably a lot of people will. No, no. <laughs> Awesome. Well, now it's on to our listeners' favorite segment of the show. Welcome to the round with no name because they're all taken. All right. His evil cousin is is here, Miko. <laughs> hey, Miko. <laughs> I hope you are ready for this round. You get exactly five seconds to initiate an answer for every question. Don't want you thinking too much. Just throw out throw out your your first thing that you think of. Number one. What is your favorite book? And not the one you mentioned earlier. Zero to one. Don't mention that one. There would be, I guess, the hard thing about hard things by Herkowitz. What is your favorite movie? Oh, gosh. Uh, I would probably say Superman. Classic. How many watches do you own? Uh, a little over 30. That's it? Yes. Well, I definitely not, put that over, over. I definitely was saying over 100. It's not the quantity. It's the quality. What is the most expensive watch you own? Uh, it's a padding. I, I, I unfortunately cannot relate to what that means, <laughs> I, but I am it's, it's, imagining it's, it's, it's up there. It's yeah. up there. Yeah, it's up there. 
it's if you're about, about to, it's a protect Nautilus and I leave it at that, but it's a very expensive one. If you're about to be stranded on an island and I am preparing you just in case you're about to be, what is the one item you want with you? It can't be a person. <laughs> uh, I would one item, probably a phone call. I mean, a, a cell phone someone can get me off the island. Um, yeah, but you're pretty, let's just say you are the only one left. Like that's it, man. Uh, I think I need a machete. A solid choice. I thought for sure it was going to be that, the, the, the watch. I, I, I can't even say it. The, the, oh, the immigrant, in, yeah, the immigrant <laughs> in me comes out. Like I can't even pronounce it. I'm just not even going to try. What is the most nervous interview or meeting you ever attended? Who was the person and why? Um, Gosh, it was, I don't recall the person's name, but this was in business school. Mm-hmm. And it was an interview in front of 350 people. And nice. it was, here's how, how an investment banking interview is going to go. I was the volunteer. And so I was asked you know, questions in front of 350 people. And it was pretty nerve-wracking because I went to Warden Business School. So mm-hmm. I'm being asked questions in front of former bankers, consultants, a lot of really smart people. So I wanted to appear to be somewhat intelligent, but you know, it's it's tough. It's a tough audience. So I was very very nervous in in that interview. Probably the nervous of any interview. If you can start up any business right now, not your own. You, if I just handed you uh, here's ten million dollars, start one up. What would it be? Uh, I think it would be a business that connects social um, engagement with transactions. Um, allowing trust to be created from a rating trust, a a trusted experience. So it allows people Mm -hmm. to be able to locate or identify an item that they want, locate that item, transact in a very safe and secure way. Interesting. And last but not least, how do you drink your coffee? With uh, almond milk. Actually, I use banana banana milk. Banana milk? Mm-hmm. Banana milk. We're, we're just getting crazy these days. Uh-huh. Banana milk? What is yes. that? <laughs> if, I, if I'm at Wombald, there's a Starbucks, it's, 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 it's almond milk. But if I have my druthers in, it's banana milk. Are we milking bananas now? I mean, yeah, it's, come it, on. <laughs> you know, I have, I have a dairy issue, so I try to stay away from the dairy. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Where do I find, where does one find some banana milk? Whole never, Foods. Whole Foods. Seriously? Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Is it like in the, in the same aisle as perhaps the almond milk? Yes. It's next to it. Oh, that's totally a Miami thing. I've never it, seen it probably, in my life. Probably so. Probably totally so. a Miami thing. Yes. All right. Well, Miro is back. You survived. I survived. We learned a little bit more about you, John. Thanks so much for being on the show. John Cormier, everybody. Watchfacts.com. That's watchfacts, F-A-C-T-S.com. Thanks so much for being on the show. It's been awesome. been a pleasure. Uh, Yeah, let us know. Where else else can we find you? Uh, Any any final closing thoughts? Um, So I'm not as active as I will be soon on Instagram, but... um... Um, just stay posted. We'll put everything on our website and then you'll be able to find us all over the place. So, but uh, thank you for having me. Really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. Definitely. And on your website, when you, uh, you have the links to the Facebook, to Instagram, right? 
all that's yes. there. I know your yes. your pages are pretty active, especially yes. Instagram. You have a lot of a lot of cool, uh, nice facts and knowledge and pictures about uh, watches, especially for all all the enthusiasts out there. Yes. Awesome. Yes. Take care and looking forward to uh, to what's to come with the journey. Okay. Thank you very much. That is all for this episode of Boss to Boss. Your next step is to visit boss2boss.com where you will find proven techniques followed by professionals to help you make that next step. Again, that is boss, the number two, boss.com. And remember, the time is now.